Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. We are on our second week of our Summer Old Book Club on Jane Austen's Persuasion, chapters 4 through 6 of Today, I have another amazing guest with me. This guest grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. He now lives in Denver, Colorado, which is why we have the luxury of recording together instead of over Zoom. He's brilliant. He's empathetic. He's deeply creative. He's also my younger brother, and he's one of the most wonderful people you'll ever meet. When he was a kid, he wrote um, elaborate scripts for new Star Wars movies, and he directed myself, (laughs) our sister, and our cousins in them, and they were very high quality. Um, He graduated from the University of Arizona with a BA in history, go Wildcats. He knows a lot about Genghis Khan in particular. (laughs) So if you're interested in learning more about Genghis Khan, he's a good source. He has watched more obscure foreign movies than anyone I know, and used to keep a really amazing blog on them that I wish he would start up again (laughs) because he's a really good writer and thinker. He's a tutor for children and adults with reading disabilities here in Denver, and he's going to teach English in Spain next year. Everybody meet John Irwin. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you're here today. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) It's really fun. talk about this great book. Yes. All right. Well, so I like to begin with a few get-to-know-you questions. Okay. So, number one. What is your favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago? From more than 50 years ago? Yes. Lord of the Rings. It has to be. Very good. Lord of the Rings. Excellent choice. I cannot argue with that. Uh, I love Frankenstein, too. Mm -hmm. That's one I think about all the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, those are probably my two two top choices. choices. Really good choices. Okay. Number two. Which literary character do you most identify with and why? Oh, gosh. This is a hard question. Yes, it is Which a hard Which one question. do I most identify mm-hmm. with? And this could and be why? not just 50 years ago. This could be any that you choose. Any that I choose. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, oh, gosh. This is a hard one. I don't know. Honestly, there's some things about the protagonist of persuasion that I relate to. Okay. Other things that I don't. Actually, but I some can things see that, that I really relate to. Um, and in ways Elliot that is are, probably a nine on the Enneagram, which yeah, you are I'm, as well. I'm also, I've been told <laughs> that I'm a nine and I tried to resist it. I was like, no, I'm not. Don't put me in a box. And then I read what it was about and I was like, Dang it. <laughs> it's true. And she definitely is. So there's oh, things gosh, yeah. in both ways where I'm like, oh, I relate to that. How mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. And other ways where I'm like, and I feel you. And I wish I didn't feel you, but I know what this is all about. Yeah. Um, so I felt that a lot this last okay. reading of this book. I don't know if she's the character I relate to the mm. most. That's a good example. Though. But she's somebody where I'm like, I understand. And yeah, like if I were in her time and place, I think I probably would have acted in some similar ways. Yes. Um, yes. So yeah, I'll go with Anne Elliot. Okay. Actually, that's not just because we're talking about persuasion. Well, that's funny. She actually is somebody who I relate to quite a bit. <laughs> Last week, uh, Jessica and I were talking about this and she was like, I have to turn back this question on you. Who do you <laughs> relate to? And um, I actually answered uh, Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice because he is kind of, 
uh, he's very warm and, and wonderful once you get to know him, but he has a, a bit of a social huh. conundrum and some some judgment issues at times. <laughs> By that, I mean not, he has excellent discernment, yeah. but he's he very strong opinions, judgmental, yeah. which I, I can also <laughs> be that way sometimes, trying not to be. But, um, but how, so is he. So is he, yes. Yeah. And he's constantly working on that yeah, once yeah. he realizes it. Um, but I, I had said that I used to think I was like Elizabeth Bennett, but I realized Hmm. she was too like witty and out there for me. So I was like, Scott is Elizabeth Bennett and I'm Mr. Darcy. (laughs) Well, that's why you guys work so well. That's why we work so well together. So we're on an Austin streak right now. Okay. Number three, when was the first time you read a Jane Austen novel? And what did you think at that time? I know it was Pride and Prejudice. Yes. When, oh, either late high school or early college. I think and I, I really remember when you did. Because you loved it so yes, much. Yes, yes. And I was like, all right, I'll read it. And, um, well, I think I'd seen the movie. Yes. I'd like been resisting watching them for whatever dumb, ignorant reason. <laughs> and then I watched the one with Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm. And... And really liked it. Yes. And uh, as one should. Yeah, as one should, because it's a great movie. Yes. And then wanted to read the book. And I think a lot of it went over my head, but also I loved it. Yes. Um, I mean, how could you not? How it's could such you a not? classic so book. Good. Great characters. <laughs> so good. So I think that was the first one I read. I love that. I think it's almost everybody's first one. Probably. I'll I'll be interested to see if anybody answers otherwise as mm-hmm. we proceed through the book. Well, should we get down to persuasion? Yeah. Okay. Chapter four has this totally fantastic beginning. Well, chapter three has a great ending. The last sentence of chapter three. Yes. Why don't you read the last sentence? Because it's it's a prime transition. (laughs) It's a classic... Uh-huh. Austin moment. Uh-huh. It's um it says as she walked along a favorite grove said with a gentle sigh a few months more and he perhaps may be walking here. Which just is a great like he mm-hmm. like she doesn't say who it is. Mm-hmm. It's like it's, it's very Anne Elliot. It's so Anne Elliot. Uh-huh. And the next chapter, chapter four, begins with that italicized he. He, which is again perfect. It's this weird hovering in the background, memories without names. He was not Mr. Wentworth, the former curate of Monkford however suspicious appearances may be, but a Captain Frederick Wentworth, his brother, who being made commander in consequence of the action off St. Domingo and not immediately employed, had come into Somersetshire in the summer of 1806 and having no parent living, found a home for half a year at Monkford. And that's how we begin, how we meet Frederick Wentworth, not in real life, but in memory. As the italicized he. (laughs) And he's been this torturous and tender memory for her for like seven years. Poor Anne. Poor Anne. (laughs) Like sentences like this. It would be difficult to say which had seen highest perfection in the other or which had been the happiest. She in receiving his declarations and proposals or he in having them accepted. Mm -hmm. So we look into this 
sad little romance chapter of <laughs> Anne's life. Yes, a short so had, period of exquisite felicity. Oh, they had met when she was 19. And it says, right, that they became acquainted over time and then mm-hmm. rapidly fell in love once mm-hmm. they knew each other. Which, tuck that back away in your head, because acquaintance and feeling acquainted enough to speak to one another is one of the like main threads later on, I think. So mm-hmm. save that for later. <laughs> but yes, keep going. Yeah, so I mean, they just fall in love really quickly when they get to know each other, but they only know each other for a few months. Yes. And it's once they let others know what their feelings mm-hmm. are that the trouble starts. Mm-hmm. Yes. <sighs> now we meet the theme, the title of the book, the issue of persuasion. Who do you listen to? Who's authoritative? Mm-hmm. What should you do? Sir Walter didn't actually say no. And that's actually important that he didn't withhold his consent, but he quote, gave it all the negative of great astonishment, great coldness, great silence, and a professed resolution of doing nothing for his daughter. Lady Russell, whose opinion matters even more, thought it um, a most unfortunate connection. Lady Russell. I have very mixed feelings about Lady Russell Russell from reading this book. It's like, I think Jane Austen wants you to like the character, I get the sense, yet I I don't. Okay, that's actually a really good question. Like, what did she feel Do, about yeah, Lady what Russell did she, she feel? Like? I don't know, because I agree. I kind of feel like she wants you to have a good feeling about It's like about she Lady keeps Russell. making excuses for it. Like, she keeps saying, like, she's very sensible, which is probably true in mm-hmm. her time and place. But then it also describes, like... Uh, or Austin also describes often how like conventional she is yes and how like lacking in a certain imagination yes maybe or a certain like oh I think that's a good idea a good word maybe lacking in imagination um she's conventional to a fault and she is she is and stuck in a in an old-fashioned way of viewing the world Mm -hmm. um and, and this is something that I talked about last week. Um, let's see if I can find it. When we met Lady Russell. <laughs> Sorry, I just uh, quickly read the idea of the shrubberies being approachable. And I had to giggle at that again. Um, so it's when Lady Russell is uh, trying to convince Anne to go to Bath. Mm-hmm. And it says she wanted her to be more known. And in this section, when we are talking about um, the, the sad failed romance, it's kind of Lady Russell. It's Austin writing as Lady Russell's thoughts um, and that Anne would um, marry Wentworth would be a throwing away, which she grieved to think of. Anne Elliot, so young, known to so few, to be snatched off by a stranger without alliance or fortune, or rather sunk by him into a state of most wearing, anxious, youth-killing dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is something that really interests me, is that she has this weird... Uh, this weird obsession with how Anne is known, but really Captain Wentworth 
was the one who really knew Anne and saw mm-hmm. the value in Anne at this early stage. And she was unable to see that she wanted this like different kind of knowing. Yeah. Yeah. She wanted her to be known in the way that would be impressive to her. Yes. She just had this certain picture in mind that yes. Captain Wentworth didn't fit. And I really like, I think I wrote it down where it says like part of the reason why she didn't like Captain Wentworth was because of how like headstrong he was in mm. a way. Like mm-hmm. um, he wasn't wealthy, uh, but he kept saying like, I'm, I'm going to make my fortune or whatever. Yes. And that uh, like, kind of freaks her out okay, and, actually, and it says that she has little taste for wit like, and of that. anything approaching to imprudence a horror okay so it's like that that doesn't sound like jane austen wants us to like lady Russell, that's true though. that's because that's jane, jane austen values wit above mm-hmm. a lot of other things yeah. wit is a high value for her yeah and to describe lady russell as having little taste for wit is yeah. I don't know. Not very. No, I'm going to think on that some more, but <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting warning sign, I think. Mm-hmm. And then poor Anne gives him up. But even that she, um, she, so here's another, again, persuaded. She was persuaded to believe the engagement a wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Indiscreet, improper, hardly capable of success, not deserving it. Um, but it was not merely a selfish caution under which she acted and putting an end to it. Had she not imagined herself consulting his good even more than her own, she could hardly have given it up. That really stuck out to me. Yes. Because it seems so foolish. Yes. (laughs) But it's so like typical of what we get to know about Anne, like yes. she is so concerned about the well-being of others. Mm -hmm. Um, And she doesn't say or see how her own how she's involved in that, like how yes. her own, like what's good for her is often also good for others. And she yes. denies way too much in a way that is not fully honest. Actually. She's not that's seeing the really full picture. Um, well, and, and that's was, what Im- not imagined herself. So you're right. Uh-huh. It is a matter of dishonesty. And as we'll see in the next chapter, she has this horror of self delusion later. Um, and I wonder if that's like rooted in this where she begins to realize how she had not been honest with herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. She um, just denies, denies, denies throughout the whole book. Yeah. Like that's such a constant with her. It is. Is um, self-denial and that's her idea of being humble, but it's in a way mm. that is often mm. not honest. Yes. And not asserting herself yes and not bringing the real things that she has to the table um i think that's so true about her she's an interesting character and i think that austin is really interested in that conundrum Mm -hmm. is and is i think one of her most complex heroines um fanny price is also very confusing in mansfield park very interesting i haven't read that one yet you should read it (laughs) it's it's not an all-star it's not pride and prejudice it's not Mm -hmm. persuasion but it's really interesting and then of course elizabeth bennett is such a winning heroine Mm -hmm. but she she's so confident elizabeth bennett is so confident which is partially her downfall and here in Anne, we almost have like the anti-elizabeth bennett Mm -hmm. in a sense because she doesn't 
trust that her judgment is worth being heard. Yes. She has a like keen mind and yes. judgment yes. and like should trust so yes. many of her instincts and then doesn't. Yes. And even like, I mean, this is something that we'll probably talk about in the next few chapters. Cause I feel like it comes up a lot, mm-hmm. but like where she's in the middle of conflicts mm-hmm. with people and she would have a very valuable perspective for like, hey, here's what the other side has been saying to me. <laughs> we can and talk about that with the Musgroves yeah, so much, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and then she kind of doesn't. No. Like, she just doesn't no. She's kind of herself. shuts down, right? Yeah, yeah. She, like, is takes a lot of comfort in being a listener and being a helper. Yes. But then doesn't assert herself to a fault. Yes. Um, And that's why she lost Wentworth. Yes. And why then Wentworth, which we won't get to this in these chapters, but he has a very strange idea of what an assertive woman looks like then, which Mm -hmm. we will talk about with Louisa Musgrove. He's looking for the opposite. Yes. And he's sort of, anyways, we'll get there. (laughs) But this question of what it means to be able to trust yourself and trust your own judgment, Mm -hmm. I think is central. Um, and it's really interesting because Wentworth himself is so confident. So there's this really weird line. I don't, did you notice this line? I always am like, what does Jane Austen mean here? But in this same chapter, still talking about Wentworth, he turns out that he did have great success in his career. He becomes Mm -hmm. a very wealthy man, totally able to support a family in like an aristocratic style All his sanguine expectations, all his confidence had been justified. His genius and ardor had seemed to foresee and to command his prosperous path. So he almost like, this is almost like a self-success story, even though Austin, I feel like, doesn't usually do that sort of thing. Did you notice those lines? Did, Did they strike you as weird? Or I don't know why. I just have a weird time with them. Like, because there's this idea almost like it was fated to be or something or like do you think it's more fate or more like he willed it into being which is a really (laughs) non-Jane austen like concept I think but I'm always surprised at that line yeah I mean it's very telling of of him and yeah and I wonder too if the failure with Anne like he was like I'm gonna prove that I can do it yeah like you like part of this denial was on the basis of not being mm-hmm. good enough by these class standards and yes. standards of wealth. Like I am going to prove myself good enough and not have you. So like, cause there's uh-huh. this anger that comes through with him. He is well, angry. Yeah. Not really yet, but later on. We'll you see, see that more. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And we see this like in that same paragraph in like the next following sentences, it mentions rank in relation to the Navy where your rank is so like clear cut, like you're Mm -hmm. a captain or you're a lieutenant or you're an admiral or whatever you are. Right. It's very clear cut. And in society, it's less clear cut, Mm -hmm. but it's another sort of reminder of that idea of rank hovering in the background, Mm -hmm. social rank. Um, Yeah. Hmm. And more Which persuasion. Is, well, this is something too that I wondered when I was reading this mm-hmm. this part of the book. And I don't I don't know how much detail I should get into because it might like sort of spoil things later on. <laughs> but I think a version of persuasion where he didn't make his fortune mm. and where 
I, I feel like I can't say too much if people are reading along and haven't read it yet. Mm. But okay, he didn't let me pause version. for a sec. Spoiler <laughs> alert, you're reading a Jane Austen novel. So yeah, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you can make the safe assumption. You don't know how, you don't know why. It's beautiful Which is the how it, it happens. Yes, yeah, that's the fun of it. They will eventually. That's true. You know that they're going to get together. You know it. You know it. That's Sorry. fair. All right. I <laughs> Anyways, feel comfortable. Yes, spoiling you can spoil that. <laughs> so they get back together. <laughs> and I do wonder how it would change the ideas of the book if he really hadn't made his fortune. Like he still was a person with the same integrity and the same brilliance, but he hadn't made his fortune. And then when they tried to get back together, um, it still was like really threatening to the people around Anne, hmm. uh, which really why that interests me is the ideas of class yes. in her yes. works and in this book yes, and how she's critical and affirms a lot mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say about that. Cause I always feel this sense of conflict reading yes. her books and like, what are her attitudes about so many of these norms around class yes. and around wealth? Totally. Um, Okay. So I hear you in a two-part question. One is what do you think (laughs) Anne would have done had he not had the success that he willed himself into? Yes. Number two is what do we make of Austin's attitude towards rank, towards class? Yeah. That was a big question. Yes. Let me answer number two first. We had touched on it last time with Jessica um, that she and I had been talking about how this book feels really different. I think, I think you are totally dead on with pointing to this embedded conflict that's not resolved in this book Mm -hmm. about what to do about class, what to do about this idea of rank Mm -hmm. that Austin does believe in. She's not a revolutionary. She's not a Jacobin. She's like, definitely not. And some of the most grotesque characters in the book though, are like the ones who are so obsessed with and that's exactly right so she's coming to this place of doubt i think i think doubt is a good word for it Mm -hmm. where she doesn't necessarily have an alternative that she feels good about except the navy right she's interested in the democratic ideals of the navy Mm -hmm. where people who don't have money but who have character and skill like wentworth Mm -hmm. can rise to a place of prominence. Mm -hmm. So it's not that she wants to throw away hierarchy because she does. She's a woman of her time. She believes in hierarchy. She believes that some people are meant to rule benevolently and some people are meant to like be ruled by them. Mm -hmm. I think maybe you guys could disagree with me. No, I I think that too. Um, I mean, she is, She's uh, not looking to like overthrow this way. She's not a leveler. No, she's not like a you know somebody who is like in love with some of the French Revolution background, American Revolution. She like doesn't bring that stuff up, mm-hmm. but she is, I think, so concerned and very troubled by bad governance and by that this idea of rank with blood has become an untenable way to go forward. Mm -hmm. That's my gut on it. Hmm. Interesting. How blood doesn't equal character. Rank doesn't equal character. Yeah. And she wants... And how it's described with um, Captain Wentworth is he had nothing but himself to recommend himself. Yes. Which is like 
Such an interesting sentence. Totally. And so different <laughs> from Sir Walter, who she has that hilarious sentence that we talked about, who all he sees are outward beauty and rank. Mm-hmm. And the, the person who united those qualities was worthy of great worship, which is himself, of course. Yeah, yeah. But um, Wentworth is not that way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that's what's going on. And I I want to think, okay, and so- we're talking that was about part of the question. That was part of the question. Back <laughs> to the other part of the question, which is, do I think they, if he hadn't gone through this great success, what would mm-hmm. have happened? And obviously no one knows. And also I think that would be in one sense, like an un Jane Austen story because part of Jane Austen's, although persuasion's not very, persuasion's got some bumps that make it not as much like the others, but there's more of a sadness. There is more of a sadness and there's more of a, question in, mm. embedded in it. But um, I think Anne would still end up with him. I do too. Actually. I actually think that his character, she has such a strong belief in his character, mm-hmm. both Austin and Anne do, that I think she would say yes still. Well, I think her feelings would be the same. Yes. Um, You're so right. Yeah. I don't... Actually, now that I say it, I don't know if they would have gotten back together because... Well, he wouldn't have been moving in those no, circles, No, he right? wouldn't have been. They might he not have ever met He would have been, like, again. at the Musgroves, like, hanging out. But her feelings would be the same. Yeah. It, like, the, the meaning of the book is the same. It's just interesting that he yes. still ends up getting that fortune. That like, is interesting. It's telling of yeah. the values yes. of, of the time. and Totally. Maybe the limits of how much she wanted to push at them. Yeah. No, I, I think that's accurate. I... I agree with you. Should we move on to chapter five? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, but before I do, I actually think this quote that is prominently on the back cover of my book actually helps us to answer that, what we were just saying, which mm-hmm. is that she had been forced into prudence in her youth. She learned romance as she grew older, the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning. And I think that is reflective of that quality of Anne you're talking about, of that mm-hmm. her feelings don't change and in fact become clarified as to like mm-hmm. what her values are. Yeah. Where it's not this forced prudence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a beautiful It is a beautiful line. It's beautiful and sad. Beautiful and sad. Just a lot of Anne. Anne is beautiful and sad. <laughs> totally. Okay. Chapter five. Um, we, this is uh, where we meet Mary. <laughs> we right? meet Mary. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Bless her heart. Poor Mary. Okay. <laughs> Who do you think? Well, no, you haven't read Mansfield Park, so I can't. So the other utterly repulsive Jane Austen <laughs> character is Mrs. Norris from Mansfield Park. So I was going to ask you who you think is worse, but you'll have to read it and tell me later. I'll have to find out. Yeah. Um, but what's funny is that we're supposed to think better of Mary than of Elizabeth. Yeah. Maybe maybe in the time that the book was written, Mary's fault seemed less pathetic <laughs> yeah. than Elizabeth's. Let's find a Mary highlight. Um, um, I love when... So Anne goes over to Upper Cross uh-huh. Cottage, right? Which yes. is where Mary and yes. the Musgroves so, live. So we should probably yeah back up a little bit. So the Crofts uh, are going to take possession of the house. Mm-hmm. And um, everything's approved. Everything is moving forward. 
they decide that Anne's going to go to the Musgroves because this absolutely sad and horrible, but funny quote, uh, speaking of Mary and Elizabeth, I cannot possibly do without Anne was Mary's reasoning. And Elizabeth's reply was "Then I am sure Anne had better stay for nobody will want her in Bath. And, the worst. And, then, <laughs> and then the next line is to be claimed as a good though in an improper style is at least better than being rejected as no good at all. And Anne glad to be thought of some use, glad to have anything marked out as a duty and certainly not sorry to have the scene of it in the country and her own dear country readily agreed to stay. <laughs> Um, oh, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, but Mary, so what I love is, um, when Anne initially like walks over Mm -hmm. and Mary's like, I've been so ill all morning. (laughs) I've never been more ill in my life. Like she's like whining that she's on the point of death. And she's like, I haven't seen a soul all morning. (laughs) And then Anne, who just knows Mary's routine, like kind of questions her. Mm -hmm. And and it's like, oh, well, have you seen your kids? Oh, yes, but they're way too loud. Have you seen your husband? Oh, he was here, but he left. Have you seen your neighbors? Oh, they dropped by, but I haven't (laughs) seen a soul all morning. (laughs) Nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me. I thought you'd never arrive. Like she's just... It was quite unkind of you to not come on Thursday. <laughs> yeah, she just, whatever gets her the most attention. Yes. Is what she goes with. Yes. Poor Mary. Poor Mary. <laughs> I was very glad, you know, Chelsea made that um, witch persuasion character. Were Are you afraid you? you'd get married? No, oh, I was not. Thankfully, I'm not very <laughs> You're much not like a Mary. Mary at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, you know, some people were sending me their responses and I was very glad to see nobody got married that we knew. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a bummer. <laughs> that would have been a bummer. <laughs> um, yes, Mary. Mary uh, is cured by forgetting to think of it. That is Anne's mm-hmm. cure. And again, <laughs> we have this idea of self-knowledge versus self-delusion uh-huh and mary is one of our great examples of <laughs> self-delusion that's one of the constants in the book self-knowledge <laughs> and self-delusion it is and it just, is and she's on one whatever end of gets that her pole. attention yeah what was there was something that i underlined about mary i don't know if i'll be able to find it that was so like perfectly descriptive <laughs> of her was it this section is. where she's where it's um Anne, a little farther perseverance in patience and forced cheerfulness on Anne's side produced nearly a cure on Mary's. She could soon sit upright on the sofa <laughs> and began to hope she might be able to leave it by dinner time. Then, forgetting to think of it, she was at the other end of the room, beautifying a nosegay. Then she ate her cold meat, and then she was well enough to propose a little walk. <laughs> and the way that Austin describes like that, it, it's so like a kid. <laughs> it's exactly like one of my kids when they throw a fit Mm -hmm. and the best thing you can do is distract them into something else. And then they're like, they totally forget that the world was literally ending and it was the worst day ever. Yeah. Once they remember that they enjoy life again, it's not actually that fun to be sick. It gets (laughs) you attention for a time. And then it's like, wait, I'd rather be like healthy. (laughs) Then you move on. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I didn't find what I'd written down, but I think it was something about how, 
Oh, here it was. Mary's ailments lessened by having a constant companion. So once Anne is there all the Mm. time, suddenly she's not sick all the time anymore. Interesting. Yes. And Anne is the most, um, I think one of the things that Austin is really interested in of all these things that I keep bringing up, but is this idea of attention Mm -hmm. and how Mary gets attention from Anne, like real attention. Anne loves Mary, despite Mary being Mary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even Mary, who is not self-aware, not a pleasant person to be around, responds to that with an improvement, which is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You see Anne's positive influence yeah. everywhere in this book. Yeah. I mean, and we're introduced to more of the Musgroves and she like helps with the kids and she finds her place and is very helpful. Um, And she listens to people and empathizes and is like, you see how much she's a positive influence where she goes. Yes. Even though she could take it further (laughs) and assert herself. Yes. But, um, but she brings a lot of good wherever she goes. She does. She does. So let's, um, Meet the Musgroves, since you took us there. Um, And first we meet their parlor, which is in a proper state of confusion. The portraits themselves are staring in astonishment. And John, this is one of the areas, I think, you asked that question about rank, Mm -hmm. where the Musgroves parlor is a place where she's thinking about that and hinting about that. Because... Mm -hmm. um, Parlors were originally like a very formal living space. And the Musgroves have um, portraits of their like forebears up against the walls. And she says, could the originals of the portraits against the wainscot, could the gentleman in brown velvet and the ladies in blue satin have seen what was going on, have been conscious of such an overthrow of all order and neatness? The portraits themselves seem to be staring in, a, in astonishment. Huh. So there's this... Little moment, a little Jane winking towards the audience uh-huh. of my society's in flux right now. Things yeah. are changing. Yeah. Rank is in question. Hierarchies are in question. Uh-huh. The parlor is a little glimpse of that. It's almost like a movie scene where mm-hmm. you're given this a visual, thematic which she really doesn't do so much. No, with the she's not a big scene no. describer. That's interesting. That didn't stand out to me. I love hearing your because you know so much about this era and like there are some customs and some things that wouldn't stand out to me when I read it. Yes. And I, and so this next sentence really shows her hand, which is where she says the Musgroves like their houses were in a state of alteration, perhaps of improvement. Mm -hmm. There's still that question there, but it's likely improvement, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what you were talking about with this inherent conflict of like, is this good? Is this bad? I think it's good, but I'm a little torn. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's interestingly conflicted. But the Musgroves really, I mean, maybe it's my 21st century American reading into it, but to me, they come across really well, or at least the, yes. the older Musgroves yes. do. Yes, yes. I do think Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove are very sympathetic, although they mm-hmm. too, at times, are like the objects of ridicule. As well, they're a little see, clueless sometimes. They're a little clueless, and as we see when, we talk, when they talk about um, Dick Musgrove, Rest in peace. Which is one of Jane Austen's meaner. <laughs> oh my God. It might be the meanest she ever gets. <laughs> pretty brutal. We'll get there in a minute. It is rough. <laughs> um, but 
they are cordial. They're welcoming. They're warm. They're friendly. They're friendly. People. Their house seems and like a nice place to be. she approves of that. Um, so like this passage right here. And I think, again, maybe this is like reading in a little bit too much into it. I'm, I'm not sure. But I feel like we get another glimpse of Jane here with Anne's self-description. Anne always contemplated them as some of the happiest creatures of her acquaintance, but still saved as we all are by some comfortable feeling of superiority <laughs> from wishing for the possibility of exchange. She would not have given up her own more elegant and cultivated mind for all their enjoyments and envied them nothing, but that seemingly perfect good understanding and agreement together. Good understanding is important. Um, mm -hmm. That good humored mutual affection of which she had known so little herself with either of her sisters. Mm -hmm. So, there's that comparison of like this family who genuinely loves each other, unlike the Elliots, um, who genuinely gets along in this state of disorder and chaos. They are kind of almost remind me of like puppies or something where there's always like mm -hmm. music, like loud noises and like everybody's excited and they're all doing things. Um, but they're really genuinely like each other and mm -hmm. get along really well. But Anne has this still this feeling of like, I'm a little bit more elegant than they are, you know? So again, Pride and how this, this conflict of like, this is kind of a newer version of how like English society could be. Uh-huh. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's definitely a Jane Austen working through maybe yes. some mixed feelings. Yes, uh, that's my theory. Figuring things out. Figuring things out, yeah. Yes. And then there's uh, Henrietta. Henrietta and Louisa, and Louisa who are um, living to be fashionable, happy, and merry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're very charming and uh -huh. they're very cheerful and mm -hmm. conventional. And Yes. Conventional is a good word. She doesn't <laughs> use it, but I That's think. That's kind of yeah. how they come across. Of the new generation. Yeah. Conventional. They're, they're in a certain mold. Yes. She says, like thousands of other young ladies. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Charles, who we will meet, but who only really likes to hunt. Um, we didn't meet him yet, right? Only in conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting how Anne, like right when she goes into this loud, loving, noisy family, um, part of her immediate reaction is like, how do I fit in? And yes. how do I be the most silently and visibly helpful to mm -hmm. everyone. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and this line, I think, is really telling of that, where she says, with the prospect of spending at least two months at Uppercross, it was highly incumbent on her to clothe her imagination, her memory, and all her ideas in as much of Uppercross as possible. Mm-hmm. Which is such an interesting phrase. But we should talk about that whole section that comes before it. Because I think there's a lot here. Yeah, yeah. So this is the beginning of chapter six. Um, it's the very first and second paragraph, if you want to look at it. But it is this idea of um, how no one's really that interested in what's going on at Kellynch, even though it was the source of so much hand-wringing and conversation at mm -hmm. Kellynch And what will, what will society think? Yes. And what will everyone else totally. think? We're humiliating ourselves. Yes. And, like, we can't do these things yeah. because that would be totally beyond the pale. 
and she gets here and and nobody really cares nobody really cares <laughs> oh your family's left where are they staying in bath yeah like, they just <laughs> Or Mary. <laughs> Upon my word, I shall be pretty well off when you're all gone away to be happy at Bath. <laughs> <laughs> Making it all about herself once Her again. Her use. <laughs> but um, this idea, she believed she must now submit to feel that another lesson in the art of knowing our own nothingness beyond our own circle was become necessary for her. What do you think of that line, that idea? The art of knowing our own nothingness beyond our own circle. Well, I love that expression that it's Jane Austen describes it as an art. Yes. Like something that you're constantly working that on. You practice. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. Because you are so conscious of your own importance within your own circle, presumably is the opposite of what she's describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's fascinating. And I think it um, shows so much about, well, it's almost the opposite of this quote in a way or something that's left unsaid. What really stuck out to me was how Anne, um, like so much of this book is her realizing how much these things that seem super important and like the main concerns of life within her own circle are not the most important things. And that's yes. part of why she allowed herself to be persuaded. Yes. And it's almost this idea that her own circle is not as huge and as all important as she thought when she was younger. And mm -hmm. that there are certain things that are even more important. Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of what stuck out to me yes. from reading this, but it's still maybe something that she hasn't fully realized exactly at this point yes like I think I think that's such a great way of describing that um I actually think it's like super relevant today in the age of like social media and being in echo chambers in circles all the mm -hmm. time it's really ironic because never before have we had the availability to see so many circles other than our own circles uh-huh and yet still we haven't learned this art according <laughs> to Anne, right? If this is an art. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm interested in that, but also um, I think your, I think your connection of it to persuasion and how that helps. Cause I think one of the questions is what's good persuasion. Like when should you listen to persuasion mm -hmm. and shouldn't have listened, shouldn't have let herself be persuaded, but persuaded persuasions also, something really valuable in this like social world. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, if Anne used her powers of persuasion more times, that would be really helpful for the people around yeah, her. Yeah. Um, if they could listen to her, which is a question, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth certainly can't. Um, but anyways, I just think that passage is really interesting. She could only resolve to avoid such self-delusion in future. But then Lady Russell's there, which is so weird. And think with heightened gratitude of the extraordinary blessing of having one such truly sympathizing friend as Lady Russell. Mm -hmm. Which I don't think of Lady Russell as like... Well, the thing that's most important in the book about Lady Russell is the time where she wasn't sympathizing. Where she mm. failed to see what was mm -hmm. actually going on True. and what Anne was actually feeling. True. And I think this... What interests me about this passage is 
how much it shows both about what Anne has learned and has realized and the things that she's still kind of stuck in. Yes. Um, like she's still looking to Lady Russell so much. Yes. Maybe in certain ways, maybe more than she should. Yes. Or uh, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly more than she should, but she's still not asserting herself enough. Yes. Yeah. She almost, especially in this section, like, because I just turned the page and then there's Lady Russell again. She Mm -hmm. almost haunts like Anne's discernment and judgment Mm -hmm. in a way, even when Anne doesn't agree with her. But in this part, um, we meet Charles Musgrove in more detail for the first time. And um, Charles Musgrove was civil and agreeable. In sense and temper, he was undoubtedly superior to his wife, but not of powers or conversation or grace to make the past as they were connected together. Because remember, Charles wanted to marry Anne originally, which shows his good judgment, but then his bad judgment pops up because he marries Mary. And Anne said no. Anne said no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyways, to make the past, as they were connected together, at all a dangerous contemplation. Though at the same time, Anne could believe with Lady Russell that a more equal match might have greatly improved him and that a woman of real understanding, getting that word understanding, might have given more consequence to his character and more usefulness, rationality, and elegance to his habits and pursuits. Mm-hmm. So woe to Charles that Anne did not say yes, <laughs> but Lady Russell there in the background. Always. Always. She's like the gatekeeper. She's the gatekeeper. Anne's mind. Yes. What's allowed, what's not allowed, what's proper, what's not proper. In the place of a mother, right? Huh. I hadn't even considered that. That's yeah. Cause Sir, and she's, Sir Walter's a nightmare. I mean, yeah. no one's going to use his judgment. Her sisters are terrible. Yeah. She's the one constant yeah. for Anne. And she's the only one who pays attention to Anne. Again, mm-hmm. this idea of attention. Who tr- at least tries to be yes, an advocate Even when for she her. totally misses the boat. Yeah. She loves Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, back to Charles Musgrove this line is great very Austin it's how Anne it's it's a little bit about Anne I mean um Mary and Charles relationship and Mm -hmm. it's They were always perfectly agreed in the want of more money and a strong inclination for a handsome present from his father. But here, as on most topics, he had the superiority. (laughs) For while Mary thought it a great shame that such a present was not made, he always contended for his father's having many other uses for his money and a right to spend it as he liked. Yeah, there's, I love the passage too. I think it's going back a little bit about uh, where they like complain about the other's parents. No, that's the next Or is one. that the next yeah, part? Yeah, yeah, okay. Tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's this whole passage where it's like all these different people complaining to Anne about things that the other is doing. So yeah. it's like Charles saying like, I would do great with the kids, but Mary spoils them all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then Mary is saying basically the same thing about him. And it's like this back and forth and Anne is just in the middle and she quietly agrees more with Charles, but doesn't say anything. Of course. Yes. (laughs) We can talk about the servants. 
and the precedents. And then there's this interesting passage. How is Anne to set all these matters to rights? She could do little more than listen patiently, soften every grievance, and excuse each to the other, give them all hints of the forbearance necessary between such near neighbors, and make those hints broadest, which were meant for her sister's benefit. Because <laughs> Mary will miss them otherwise. <laughs> she probably still misses them. <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. Poor Mary. <laughs> and that's very telling of Anne. She only feels like she can give hints and yes. she feels responsible for everyone in a certain way. Yes. Cause I mean, that's, what's interesting is that you have this conflict in that little section where you start with this question, how was Anne to set all these matters to rights? Mm -hmm. So it seems like you're going to go off on this like sort of mediatory role, mm -hmm. um, which she is doing, but in such a subtle, low-key way. And you mm -hmm. see that kind of conflict in Anne of, like, her own. And then again, I think this might be a moment where we are reading through our 21st century American lens. Um, I think Jane Austen might be approving here of what Anne does. And it's not that what Anne is doing yeah. is bad. Yeah. But... I don't know if she would say that Anne needed to be more assertive in this moment. Whereas I agree with you that I think this is a little snapshot of mm -hmm. a place where Anne could have a voice because people actually want to talk to her and want to listen to her. Oh at, yeah. She's at upper cross. She's, she's a great like listening ear. Yes. People know that they can turn to her. Yes. Yeah. You might be right. Something about like, we just want to have it out or like, yeah. just be honest, just be straightforward yeah. with each other instead of like giving all these hints. Like and maybe like not with Mary, maneuvering who seems so like much. she would not be ready to take no, anything, any, anything honest, but like with the Musgroves or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. You might be right. That maybe that was just more of a value than the ability to quietly listen and take it in and, well, subtly, here, you know who this passage kind of reminds things. me of is um, Jane Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, right? That Jane is like almost too good for the world. Like she never thinks ill of anybody. She mm -hmm. is um, like sort of the prime example of like calmness, patience and forbearance with people. Mm -hmm. And that, it's, that I think is a similar idea here. Mm -hmm. They're very different, I think, Jane and Anne, but this is a, an overlap. Mm -hmm. More Musgroves. Anne playing ballroom dances on the piano. <laughs> the 29th of September comes and the Crofts take possession of Kellynch. Nobody really remembers until Anne... I mean, until Mary says, I'm glad I didn't think of it before, how low it makes me. And then she visits the cross right away while Anne finds an excuse to stay away. And Mary says, nobody knew how much she should suffer. She should put it off as long as she could, <laughs> but was not easy till she had talked Charles into driving her over on an early day and was a very, and was in a very animated, comfortable state of imaginary <laughs> agitation when she came back. <laughs> oh, Classic Mary. Mary. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so they meet the Crofts. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is part of where we get to Richard Musgrove, Dick <laughs> Musgrove, which really is very mean. So it's kind mean. of shocking to it read is, now. It, 
it really is one of those moments where you're like, wow. Damn, Jane. <laughs> Damn, Jane. You really <laughs> went for the jugular. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, this passage um, is, I think, where you get the bulk <laughs> of, like, the dagger of mm-hmm. Jane Austen's um, meanness. The real circumstances of this pathetic piece of family history were that the Musgroves had had the ill fortune of a very troublesome, hopeless son and the good fortune to lose him before he reached his 20th year, that he had been sent to sea because he was stupid and unmanageable on shore, that he had been very little cared for at any time by his family, though quite as much as he deserved, seldom heard of and scarcely at all regretted when the intelligence of his death abroad had worked its way to Uppercross two years before. Harsh. Oof. (laughs) So harsh. And then this cracks me up. His sisters were now doing all they could for him by calling him poor Richard. Been nothing better than a thick-headed, unfeeling, unprofitable Dick Musgrove who had never done anything to entitle himself to more than the abbreviation of his name, living or dead. Yikes. And um, some people think that... uh, that is one of the like first like literary references to somebody being called a dick because they are <laughs> a crummy person. That's an actual theory. Some people think that. <laughs> yes. Interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> huh. I wouldn't have thought to trace that back to Jane Austen, but surely she would come <laughs> up with it. I don't know. And I forget where I read that. That would make it more I kind of am like, did I really read that? Cuz that seems so far fetched, but I know I did somewhere. Huh. But I need to find it. I need to dig it up. Um because I mean she's she's really uh making a dick joke there. Which is yes. crazy. <laughs> yeah, his, his name becomes a butt of a joke. Yes. Yeah, that's where her satirical side becomes its harshest right there. And and where, like, some of the harshness of the time really stands out. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it reveals a different um, perspective in how we think of, like, people and their desserts, basically, is that Mm -hmm. she doesn't really feel bad at all about like there's no this is purely humorous like there's no mm-hmm. double meanings of like her sarcasm revealing something that's like sad about the world or wrong about the world mm-hmm. or like poor poor stupid dick musgrove like no she's she's just, she's just straight up like yeah he was dumb <laughs> nobody liked him he was an ass good riddance goodbye like now they're all faking it and yeah, yeah I rough. think there's a real, you're right. There's, there's definitely a different cultural moment coming through there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't, that wouldn't really fly now no. as much. No. Although it is funny, but it's mean. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Richard. But he comes up, right. Because um, he had been on Captain Wentworth's ship. Yes. Right. Yes. And so suddenly they're reminded of of poor Richard. Yes. So Captain Wentworth becomes a star for the Musgroves. They wouldn't have cared about him before. And in fact, Anne is feeling very relieved because no one knows about their past. She feels very secure and that this Mm -hmm. is going to be a non-issue, even though the Crofts live nearby. And then 
poor Dick Musgrove brings it kind of crashing down into the Musgrove's parlor. Um, and this is a, a painful trial for Anne. And Anne this whole time has just been busying herself with yes. the, with the family and, and then privately thinking of Captain Wentworth and when will I see him and how will I respond when his name comes up? And it's like this source of stress and she doesn't want to show yes. how much he still means to her. Yes. And I think that's something that Jane Austen does so beautifully in the first few chapters of this book, especially where it's like this, uh, the busyness of all these social affairs and of yes. Anne concerning herself with all these different dynamics and relationships. And there's the humor in it and the irony and, um, and then it just kind of like Jane Austen kind of punctures it with these quiet little yes. introspective moments with Anne where she's just feeling regret or uncertainty about how she'll respond when she sees him again. And um, I think she does that really beautifully she does. in this book. She does. And that's, I think, where some of this sense of melancholy comes through so clearly mm -hmm. is that being that like kind of now cliche idea, but it's so true of the loneliness in like a busy room mm -hmm. um, when there's all the hustle and bustle around you. And yet Anne's constant steadiness is just this undercurrent throughout it all through mm -hmm place to place she's she's moving from place to place but when she's at Kellynch that is there underlying it all when she's at Upper Cross that's there underlying it all big mm -hmm. house or little house um and nobody nobody knows nobody senses it I not mean, even Lady Russell knows no, that one no or she doesn't want to know yes it talks about how like with them uh once once the engagement or whatever it was exactly gets broken off with Captain Wentworth. It's like not something that yeah. they talk about. No ever. one ever brings it up again. And she it's says kind that of almost forgotten. Yes. And actually I kind of like skimmed through that, but I think you're right in bringing it up as something significant that like, I read that as Anne being grateful that nobody was going to mention it. Um, but which is true, but I think you're right in pointing to that that loneliness in that no one even, she doesn't even have a friend who's like Wentworth, you mm -hmm. know. Who like, knows what a big okay? deal it is yes. for her, yeah. Yeah, like Eleanor and Marianne and Sense and Sensibility, who mm -hmm. even though they don't, um, they aren't always on the same page. There's a lot going on in Eleanor that Marianne is too wrapped up in herself to see, but she is this sympathetic, loving presence nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Eleanor's never truly alone. Mm -hmm. and Or like, Elizabeth and Jane and Pride and Prejudice, same mm -hmm. thing. And Jane herself, Jane Austen, had her sister Cassandra all the time. They lived together their entire mm -hmm. adult lives. Um, and so for her to, to write Anne as truly without any friendship or sisterly love, the coldness of Elizabeth, the self-absorption of Mary, mm -hmm. is significant. Yeah. Yeah, she's a very, through so much of this book, there's such a 
striking loneliness to her character. Mm -hmm. Like there's even one part in in these chapters where it (laughs) describes like how she kind of, kind of her therapy or how she like works it out as many a stroll and many a sigh. Like her, she just walks by herself and, and that's, both such like a sentence of its time. Yes, it's and so it's, like Regency period. Yeah. Even you can totally imagine in like a movie adaptation how they would film that, like the solitary figure walking uh-huh. through like the beautiful English Absolutely. countryside, you know. <laughs> but it, it's but it it's fits her character yes. so well. And and yeah, the sadness of yes. her character and the loneliness and the uh and just not being known, despite yeah. everything that Lady Russell says and does not mm-hmm. being truly known she's so busy she's so helpful she does so much and and it's all kind of both her helpfulness is kind of unacknowledged often yes. or acknowledged in a shallow kind of way yes like oh Anne, she's a great helper yes. she plays the music at at, at our the, party at the balls. <laughs> it's great we love, we her, love that but, but like but she's not really appreciated. Yeah. And then also on an even deeper level, she's just not known at all. Like she's, yes, she is her inner this, world is yeah. completely foreign yeah. to everyone around her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's a, she's a fascinating character. Again, she's totally different from Elizabeth Bennett or, or Emma, like all these oh other my gosh. Jane Austen She couldn't be more different characters. than Emma. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. Emma is a novel of optimism. Mm -hmm. And this is not a novel of pessimism. That would be taking it too far. But there's quite a bit of ambivalence here, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so final question, because I think we're about coming up on an hour. We've covered... Pretty much everything, except I did want to say we meet Mrs. Croft, who is unlike anybody we've ever met in a Jane Austen novel before. Totally unique. Listen to this uh, description of her. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Croft, though neither tall nor fat, had a squareness, uprightness, and vigor of form, which gave importance to her person. She had bright dark eyes, good teeth, and altogether an agreeable face. Though her reddened and weather-beaten complexion, the consequence of her having been almost as much at sea as her husband made her seem to have lived some years longer in the world than her real eight and thirty. Her manners were open, easy, and decided, like one who had no distrust of herself and no doubts of what to do, without any approach to coarseness, however, or any want of good humor. I don't think there's another character like that in Jane Austen. I, I guess there isn't. You you'd probably know more than I would as I mean, much as I love. I haven't read all of her books. and We have like, a, we have plenty of confident characters like Elizabeth Bennet, but mm-hmm. Elizabeth Bennet is not this um, weather-beaten, like, Somebody she's who has almost lived described out in, so ma- in a masculine fashion. Mm-hmm. She had a squareness, uprightness, and vigor of form. Just a solid. Just this presence. Yeah, yeah. She is an interesting character. Yeah. And I kind of wish she was in the book more. I do She's, too. There is something striking about her. And again, going to the visuals, whatever Jane Austen goes to like this more visual kind of writing, it's it's interesting. And it's always significant when yeah. she does. She's always doing something like pointing a finger. Like that's something to pay attention to. Because mm-hmm. she's so interested in conversation, so interested in inner 
the life of the mind and inner thoughts mm-hmm. and making little asides about people. But when she actually describes how something looks in great detail, it's usually a point of, yeah. of something interesting going on. Interesting. There. Yeah. Um, anyways, my last question for you though is who would you cast in a movie? You've seen so many movies. You have such a wealth of knowledge um, about cinema and mm. acting actors who would you cast as the elliot family we won't try to do everybody but the elliot family the elliot family yes oh gosh another hard question um for sir walter somebody who could well i'm just gonna put aside like nationality or whether they could do a for british sure. accent no no whatever. no all of those this is like dreamland <laughs> they could even be like somebody who's dead like it could be dreamland. It could be like, I would cast young so-and-so oh, as this dead. person. I you can know? see Cary Grant being a good Walter Elliott. Cause he oh, could do he the shallow, funny. Yes. ridiculous. Yes. I love um, that. And like handsome, but vapid. Yeah. Yeah. He can, <laughs> he could nail that. Yes. Anne Elliott is hard. Oh, so hard. And I honestly working now, I can't really, Mm-mm. I can't really think of anyone Mm-mm. who would totally fit. Um, I don't know if it's because she did such a fantastic job in Sense and Sensibility, but I do think younger Emma Thompson would make a good Anne. She would. She totally would. She could do the, uh, like, she's beautiful, but she can play somebody who can be, like, Who's invisible. withdrawn, yes, yeah. who's, who draws back into herself and isn't, like taking center stage mm-hmm. which a lot of actresses just naturally take center yeah, stage that's, i mean that's what they do that's their they're that's their theater job. kids yes. growing up theater kids it's yeah, exactly. not really not really wallflowers no um yeah and for the other members of the family elizabeth interesting Ooh. i don't know somebody who can play vanity well mm. beautiful and can play that like pompous it has to be unlikable well. right uh-huh oh it seems insulting to tell somebody or to like say that this person could play that well Mm. i feel like when she was younger maybe Charlize theron oh she would be good with that yeah or she can have that hard edge okay um who is the um the actress in uh who's very beautiful who was in that recent Jane Austen adaptation of like one of her unfinished novels that I'm forgetting the oh, name of. Love and Friendship. Yes. Uh, Kate Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale. She'd be great. Could be yeah. a great Elizabeth. Cause she was fantastic. She was so in good movie. in she that was perfect. Role. Yeah. Yeah. And she can play mean. She can so be well. <laughs> so mean and like self-absorption. Like she could do that really great. I uh, think. Good pick. And Mary, somebody who can be totally ridiculous. What's the name of the actress who plays Jenna Maroney? Or what's in, oh my uh, gosh, she's so funny. I don't remember I her don't name. I don't remember her name, but she's hilarious. But she can do that like... So clueless. Clueless, making herself the victim. Like everything's yes. about her. Actually, Jenna Maroney is kind of a Mary Musgrove in 30 Rock. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. But like, I'd rather, more I'd, yeah, I'd rather hang out with Jenna. Oh, who wouldn't? Jenna is a lot more fun. At least she's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that. Okay. 
I think those are some good That's choices. That's a solid. Okay, yeah. I like that. That's a solid I like solid how this persuasion choice. movie is. Yeah. I mean, up. okay, so I don't know how many of you have noticed, but there are currently two persuasion adaptations in production. Netflix is doing Which one. Which is bizarre. So weird because in some ways it's the least like cinematically friendly of Austin. It's novels. not as like sassy. It's, it's not as sassy. It's not, not as, as romantic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it is romantic, but in a very subtle. In a more subdued way. It's very subdued. Less youthful, mm-hmm. even though she's like. 27 wow but back According then to, that was, was different a spinster. Yeah. <laughs> that um, meant a very different anyways thing. i feel very um not hopeful about the casting in, in choices in some of those because it's v- all very 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 beautiful people and you i'm talked like about it is um dakota johnson is supposed to play 50 shades of gray 50 shades of gray dakota johnson is is supposed to play Anne, which i'm like some in the words choice. of Arrested Development, her? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. She, because she's just like, I can't really see her playing the person who is invisible. The wallflower. Who knows? Help her, but maybe, maybe she just hasn't this. shown her range yes. yet. I don't know. She's just so dang beautiful though. Yeah. Like yeah. she's gorgeous. And I'm like, Anna's supposed to be pretty, but and pretty is different than like gorgeous. like a confidence. And she seems an really edge. confident. Like when I see her in a photo, like she's... Again, like mm-hmm. a good actress does, she's the center. Like yeah. she draws the you poise, in. Poise the way yes. she stands and looks. Totally. And... So I'm skeptical, but we'll see. Maybe she'll blow us away. Who knows? Um, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank John. you for having me. I'm here. so glad that was really fun for me. <laughs> it was fun, <laughs> and I'm excited to hear what everyone else has to say about me the rest too. of Persuasion. Me too. There's a lot of good stuff coming up. Um, speaking of. I will put in the obligatory plug for um, don't forget to subscribe to either the YouTube channel or to the podcast um, to make sure you don't miss an episode of the Summer Old Book Club and get all the good stuff that's coming. Um, And I would love to hear your thoughts about anything that happened in this chapter. Um, Also, if you have any suggestions for who you would cast in your own <laughs> persuasion adaptation. Um, although I think we came up with a pretty good one. I feel, I feel, I feel confident yeah. in our choices, but you might have a better, better idea. So let us know. Um, thank you for listening in and I look forward to next time.